0: to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kyrka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson from the ministry staff at Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, April 23rd, 2023. Today's message title, The Greatness of God, a study in the book of Nehemiah chapter nine. Father, we
1: praise your name. Thank you so much that we can gather here today. Father, we thank you for, for the weather. Thank you for the sun. Thank you for just having another day where we wake up knowing that we are sustained by you, that we are breathing, our hearts are beating, our eyes are seeing because of your grace. You uphold everything that you've created. And Father, there's so often where we drive by mountains and we see the stars and we forget to see the grandeur of our creator, the glory of our creator. Father, today, as we dwell on your word, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in such a way that we would walk out with thankful hearts, with generous hearts in light of what you've done for us, that we would seek to love and serve others and in light of what you've created and what you sustain, that we would be in awe of who you are, that we would be touched and transformed and equipped to to glorify you, to speak of you, to show you in the way we live. Father, may we may we glorify you here today. May our worship not cease just when we stop singing, but rather as we study your word, may we now worship you in spirit and in truth. May we worship you with informed minds. And Father, as we go into this week, Father, I pray that we would worship you with all of our strength and all of our being. Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to look more like, to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, would you guide my tongue would you be with us? Would you open our hearts to be transformed and touched by your revelation in Jesus' name? And everybody said, amen. Anyway, so we're going to be jumping into Nehemiah chapter five, chapter nine, we're going to be starting in verse five. As we said last week, uh, by the way, there's no, did I mention there's no kids ministry? Unfortunately, so um, we're going to start with verse five and I'm gonna take this in chunks. What we're, what we're about to enter into, like I said last week, is the longest recorded prayer in all of the Bible. And here the Levites are standing before the Israeli congregation, the Jewish congregation, and they're reading to them. Uh, first of all, in chapter eight, there's this revival that happens when they uh, re-encounter the word of God and they read it and it convicts them. And they, they not only shout with excitement, but they also wail as they, they have been confronted by the holiness of God. and yet how often the Jewish people have failed to follow God. And here the Levites are gonna go into a prayer. And I want us to focus on the first half of that prayer, which is giving glory to God. And the title is, oh man, i sorry, I forget. (laughs) Nehemiah 9, 5 through 15. Uh, The title for the Nehemiah sermon series is Ruins Restored. And today we're remembering the greatness of God. And I hope that this might be, if you have a lot of questions about God, uh, this might resolve some of those questions, some of those basic questions that I think a lot of people ask. But also I hope that, and, and I hope you realize that the point of this faith is not to make you the center point. In fact, if you make yourself the center point of all of your life, you will lose out on joy because life is not meant to revolve around you, but rather your creator. And when you put him first, that's when everything else Falls in line. So today we want to remember the greatness of God. So would you stand with me as we read the first verse of the, the 10 or so that we're reading today? And then we'll dwell on this. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Has, Hasabenea, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Kethaya said Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Amen? All right, you may be seated. So here for the first half of this prayer, I, I find it very interesting because what we're going into, um, when I started reading through this prayer, I started remembering uh, Matthew chapter six, when the disciples of Jesus come to him and say, hey, will you teach us how to pray? And he gives them a prayer that lasts for something like 45 seconds if you repeat it. but. How many of you remember the Lord's Prayer from from memory? Grew up in in church, perhaps one, two, three, four. Okay, we could we could do better. But uh, but if you didn't remember, this is the Lord's Prayer. He says to them, "Pray like this." I, I find it very interesting that the prayer we're about to go into kind of reflects the first half of this prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples. He says, "Our Father in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day." our daily bread, right? For some of us, we don't like to ask for daily bread. We wanna, we wanna feast for right now and all of life, right? But not for daily bread. So here the prayer in in Nehemiah actually starts in verse five, not with a request, but rather praise. It's remembering our father in heaven. And I find that interesting. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, for most of us, when we think about prayer, we think about this is the time when I come to Christ and I ask for what I want. Kind of like a glorified Santa Claus in some, some cases, right? This is what I want. This is when I want it. This is the type of car I want. Just not just four wheels. I want the nice type of car and that type of stuff. No, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he starts with praising God. He says, our father in heaven, holy is your name. And this is what they do here today. In verse five, what do they start with? They start with stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And when they move on to verses six through 15, they don't simply pray for the kingdom of God to come. What they do is remember how God has come, what he has done and how he has provided their daily bread. They recount how he's done that throughout the history of the nation of Israel to this point. And in the most impossible and improbable of circumstances, they remember God coming through and doing his work. And so the Levites, they start in verse five, stand up and bless the Lord your God
2: from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting. To everlasting, this is God without beginning
1: or end. There's no measurement for God. How many of you have have wondered, as, as as people may say to you, "Well, look at creation; it testifies of its creator." And you might say, "Yes, and amen to that." But how many of you have thought, "But who created God?" Anybody else who thought that or asked that question? Okay, Lizzie is the only one having conversations? <laughs> I struggled with that for the longest time. Okay, so you're telling me God created this, but who created God? And if someone created God, then who created that thing? And blah, 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 blah. On and on it goes. What they're
2: saying here, from everlasting to everlasting. He's saying, I am. He is. I love this. When Moses
1: is is confronted by the burning bush and he says, okay, I'll, I'll speak for you. But how do I introduce you? What do I call you? What is your name?
2: What, who do I say I'm here for? And God says to him, I am. That's the best descriptor of God. That's, that's where we
1: get the, many, many would say Jehovah, right? I think it's probably rightly pronounced Yahweh, although we can't be fully sure, but that is the best
2: descriptor of God. I am. When Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, what does he say? He says, before
1: Abraham was, I am. And what do they want to do? They want to kill him. Right. Many will tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, he said, I am, right. And they all understood it in such a way they wanted to try to kill him when he said he, he was, I am. And what I love about this is when Moses is confronted by God and he says, who am I? I am. I love it because he doesn't say I was, he doesn't say I will be, he simply is. If- Everything around us that we see and we don't see from, from the mountains we see from the, from the window to the particles that we don't see is just a matter of cause. And in fact, he is not. He is the total exception to everything else. He is the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover of all things. So question like who created God is the wrong type of question, in fact. Because here, We are talking about a God from everlasting to everlasting without beginning and end, the alpha and omega. He's not simply another great part of creation, but rather the originator of every created thing. And not only the originator, the creator of everything, he is the very sustainer of everything. So when we come together, when we praise God for all of his mercies and all of his grace, we're not simply saying, thank you, creating. No, every breath that you breathe, is another indicator of the grace of God. Every thought that you have, every beat of your heart, is the grace of God being revealed to you because he's not only the one who started it like a distant clock, what is it, clockmaker that winds the watch and lets it go,
2: but he is the very sustainer of your light yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's in a whole different category
1: unto himself not limited to space not bound by time nor defined by matter he is i am he is yahweh so as we think through this prayer perhaps the first lesson we can take from it is to focus on god if if you want to be good at praying don't focus so much on the words or the structure of your prayer or what you're saying but rather focus
2: on who you're talking to. Focus on who you're with, right? If you wanna be good at conversation, let's say if I wanted to be,
1: have a great conversation with Lizzie, what I would do is not really take hours on end to prepare for the conversation that I would have with Lizzie. No, I would spend time with Lizzie, the conversation would kind of naturally follow, right? Because I'm focused on the person and not what I'm saying. So if you wanna get good at praying, Take a page out of the Levites book right here and say, let's focus on who we're talking to, not what we're saying, but rather who it is that we're talking to. Now, some of us are facing temptation in our life and anger in our life because our eyes are not fixed on God. They're fixed on the wrong objects. You're not remembering or dwelling on the fullness of the glory of God, which is exalted above above all blessing and all praise. What I love about that is the Levites are saying, man, if we exhaust the breath in our lungs to simply say praise be to God all day, every day, with all of our energy, and yet you are exalted above all praise. No words can describe your greatness and grandeur. No
2: amount of yelling and praising can ever give you credit for what you've done. We fail to admire the one who is the originator of all of creation, the sustainer of it in prayer
1: and in the word. And so, so often the fruit of that is anger because we try to find calm in the things that he created, but that's not what he created you to find satisfaction in. Now the first sentence in their prayer says so much about the greatness of God. And it screams to us, not only to repeat the words that the Levites are saying right here, but to actually believe them. Do I believe? that God is in a whole different category unto himself. Do I believe the best gift that God could give me is not all this stuff that he has created, but rather himself who is the originator of everything good in this world. We live in a world that gives us heavy heads. I don't know if you notice this, how easy it is just to be weighed down by everything around you, to be distracted, to not look up, to not see God. It's difficult to look up from the daily grind and, and from the advertisement and the culture seeking to fix your eyes on someone else or something else, to compare yourself to someone else's life or the stuff that you don't own versus other people. But man, all this stuff is momentary and fleeting. All this stuff will not last. And when we set, see that my joy, my identity, my worth is not found in this, stuff that God created, but rather in the creator himself, all of a sudden we can be assured of joy because I know where I am going and whose I am. All the stuff that he may give me in this life is a nice added bonus, but it's not where my worth is found. And so we continue on with a prayer where the Levites say, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the hosts of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorite, the Parasite, the Jebusite, the Girgisite, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Imagine being called the nation Parasites, (laughs) the Parasites. No, but they're talking about the promises of God, right? I love this right here. What the Levites are doing in this prayer is using their pray in the Bible. They're, they're remembering the greatness of God in the word of God. In Nehemiah chapter eight, well, what do we see? They're, they're reading the word of God and the people are getting convicted. What are do they doing now? They're using their knowledge to remember the greatness of God. They're praying out the Bible and history of God to remember the greatness of their God. So why is it important for us to be a people of the book? And why is it important for us? Why is it that Every pastor asks the annoying question when things are going wrong in your life, are you spending time in
2: prayer and in this book right here? Why is it important that we be people of the book? Well, because in being biblical people, we are taking a conscious step to say,
1: we wanna be informed and transformed by the very truth of God. I know what people think of God I know there are so many opinions about Jesus, but I want to hear from Jesus himself. I know there are so many philosophies, so many quote unquote wisdoms out there, and yet I want to know from the wisdom of God, the author of life. Because the reality is this every song that you listen to is teaching you a worldview. Every movie you watch is teaching you something. Every book that you read um, is giving you values that you may slowly either unconsciously start to adopt as your own or you might reject it. But when we read the Bible, we're going to God saying, would you make me think and see things as you see them? Would you make me more like
2: you? And this is the the very briefed out word of God that is able to equip you for everything good. There's an amazing promise. It's able to refute wrong doctrine,
1: wrong thinking, to protect you in a world that is given over to wickedness. This is the very word of God. And yet, how often we are too distracted to go
2: and say, Would you, would you let me know who you are? And here, he's going through the history of the Bible. The <laughs> Levites, <laughs> Victoria is really excited about the Bible. Um,
1: and here, he's going through the history of the Bible, history of what God has done huh? for how God rules over creation, not only all that is seen, but also in the unseen. He talks about the created beings on land. He talks about the created beings in the sea, uh, but also he talks about the unseen realm, right? Uh, as we as we just read, what, it, what, what is it in uh, verse six? You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, right? This rather confusing language right there. But this is this is the Hebrew way of thinking about heaven. Like they didn't think about God that was just beyond the clouds. Uh, when Paul talked about being captured up to the third heavens, right? That's what that's what they're talking about there. He's talking about hey paradise where we're un the where, where beings are, where God is, where we can't see them with all their hoses. He's talking about the angels, and so <clears throat> they're not only praising God for what they can see, the mountains that He's created the the laws that he's created, the physics that
2: he's created, but rather also the unseen. And many within the Christian church, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, there are certain
1: people within the Christian church who are absolutely obsessed with the idea of angels. Um, Many in the world still today, uh, I went to a movie theater the other day. I haven't been to the movies in like... I don't know, I think before COVID, probably <laughs> it's been a while since I went to the movies and I was watching the trailers, and I think like three out of five trailers were demon movies. and I was like, wow, okay, the world is still kind of obsessed with exorcism and demons and so on. So so we got certain Christian traditions that are totally obsessed with angels, other worldly traditions that are totally obsessed with demons. but here, the Levites are praising God because no matter how great creation may seem or no matter how powerful some angels might look like or seem, they are not the object of their faith. They're not the object of their worship, but rather the God who created all of them. Now think about this. When you read scripture, almost every single time an angel appears, what happens? The people are scared out of their minds. Right? This is definitely not sort of a chubby baby with tiny wings playing a harp. And everybody, ah, what's this? No, no, no. This is like a terrifying being that just entered the room. First thing that they learn in angel school supposedly is do not fear. I'm the good guy. <laughs> I'm with God in this. So you don't have to worry about me. And so think about that. Think about the reaction that people have to angels in the Bible. Think about how powerful they might be. And yet we are reminded again and again, no. This is not just about the angels or the demons, this is about the God who created all of them. People have this skewed image. You might grow up with this idea. I think um, that we might be more informed by cartoons than we realize. (laughs) Um, When you think of Satan, when you think of heaven, when you think of angels, when you think of demons, a lot of people have their views of demons and angels and heaven and hell. All informed by sort of cartoons without realizing it. But people have this skewed image about God that somehow it's almost like Satan is on this side and God is on this side. And we read this book and we're like, man, I really, really hope that God is going to win this fight. Or, man, I really, really hope that just, you know, that he squeezes out that last piece of energy and God wins Satan finally. When in reality, when we read this book, we see that God is not. Sort of arm wrestling the devil and just barely winning. God is in a whole different category unto Himself. I've noticed there's some sort of portrayals of demon possessed people and exorcisms um, that somehow you know you walk into these movies that were someone is demon possessed and you're like, man, I really really hope that God is powerful enough to get this demon out. And in that movie, they make it seem like man, it's it's all about how hard the, or how loud the priest yells at the demon or intimidating the priest can be with a demon or how long he can pray or or if he brings nice you know, toys to the room like a cross or something like that or burns incense, then maybe he's going to win the demon and we'll see if God is going to win this fight or the devil is going to win this fight. But in reality, what do we see here in this prayer in the Levites? They're saying, no, no, no. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is not only the creator of every mountain that you see, all of creation. He's not only very guy who keeps your heart beating right now, but rather he's the creator of all the angels themselves and the fallen angels, that is the demons themselves. He's the only one who is the unmoved mover of all things and no demon, no power on this earth, be it political, military, or demonic power can stand against him. There is no way. Texts like these remind us that no matter how great an angel or demon is, God is greater. You see this in the life of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Who are the most, uh, who are the best theologians in the life of
2: Jesus as you read the gospels? The demons are. Do you know that? The demons know exactly who Jesus is before anybody
1: else. So it's not just about knowing stuff. (laughs) Most definitely not about knowing stuff. And what I like about the way G- the demons tremble and, and, and behave when Jesus comes onto the scene, there's no question about who is in authority or who is greater. Like read with me here in Matthew um, 8, 28 to 29. Here's when, uh, and I always struggle with pronouncing the city. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, would you say it that way? Two demon possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So what do we know about these dudes? They have been terrifying that town. Everybody's given up on trying to control these guys. They are on their own, living among the dead in the tombs. And behold, they cried out when they saw Jesus, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What I love about these verses is there is no debate about who's in charge here. There's no debate about who's going to win this battle. They're just asking, why have you come so early? Why have you come so early? Have you come before the time? So don't let anybody fool you into thinking that, man, if you have God on your side, maybe you can survive this. Maybe God can fight for you. Maybe he can win the battle. No, 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 no. He is the creator. Everything else is beneath him. Demonic power is real. It's active be it in possessed people or oppressed people, simply oppressed societies. I think as we see in a lot of the West today where hope is giving way to destructive and ungodly thoughts that lead to ever increasing hopelessness as we see it on the rise everywhere around us. If the church is on the move to build up, Satan
2: is going to be on the move to tear down. But what we have to decide is in whose authority are we going to do it in? Man, if you,
1: dear brother or sister, are gonna say, I am going to make this thing happen. I, by my own strength, by my own wisdom, I'm gonna build the kingdom of God here in
2: Iceland. I was so lucky to have me on his team. You are going to fail. But remember the words of Christ, Simon Peter. And actually we were, we were singing this in the song, uh, Build Your Church. Please. Before this verse, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? I find it very interesting. Who do people
1: say that I am? Because we're in a society today where everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Almost every, every world religion you go to, they have a very strong stance about Jesus. They may try to change him and include him in their religion. They may totally reject him. So it's not just a modern thing where everybody has an idea about who Jesus is. No. Even when he was alive, everybody had ideas about who Jesus was. So he asks, who do people say that I am? Simon throws out the theories. Oh, you're John the Baptist, reincarnate, so on and so forth. And then Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, if you don't know, if you haven't read the Bibles, uh, Bible a whole lot, Simon Peter, I don't know, he's sort of a hit and miss guy. <laughs> Sometimes he's, a, he's very quick and confident to speak and then very often totally wrong, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, saying, ding, 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 you got it right. Blessed are you, Peter, that's great. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Like, unfortunately, Simon, we can't give you credit for this one. God helped you, (laughs) give you the right answer. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my
2: church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus says, what is the rock that Jesus is talking about? It says confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock that he's going to build his church upon, this confession. And what does he say? The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. For one, I don't think the church really often behaves like this is true. (laughs) So often the church
1: more more or less kind of behaves like we're in retreat, that we're, you know, we just have to kind of keep our stance and try to keep hell out of the church. And what is what is what is he saying here? He's saying the hell is on the defensive. Gates are not really things that you bring to battle to go on the offensive with. You don't say, hey,
2: everybody, we're about to attack. Bring the gates. I don't know. You build gates to keep something out. <laughs> you, you build gates to be on the defensive. And Jesus says, man, on this rock, that I
1: am the son of God, the Christ, I'm build my church.
2: If my church acts in this authority, the gates of hell stand no chance. They're going to fall. When we move in Jesus' name, we remember where the power of our faith comes from. And if you
1: ever face demonic power that is being revealed in obvious ways around you, um, maybe you might just encounter it in your homes or in people that are oppressed or, or uh, possessed. Uh, remember this.
2: You don't win demonic power by screaming at it. You don't win demons by being intimidating.
1: You You don't. You don't have victory over demons by by having nice
2: wordy and long prayers. You you don't have victory over demons, crosses, and trinkets. Like, no, no, no. You have you have victory over a demonic force that you might face through Jesus
1: alone. Like, this is the name that's above every other name. He's the one from everlasting to everlasting. You are simply the guy saying in Jesus' name right here. Like, in his authority, in his power, get out of here. This is all about Jesus. So when the Levites remember the history of their God in action in all of creation, their faith is built because they see clearly the object of their faith is not themselves. And it's God, right? Praise God that your faith doesn't have to be as strong as you are. I don't know about you, because I can look back from the last week and I'm not impressed with myself. Anybody in here the same way? Last month, last you know, year, how, how many times we've failed? How, how we've been unreliable? How many diets we've started, right? Amen, anybody? No, just the- <laughs> think about this. Your faith is not built on you, praise God. So why is it important that we go to the very word of God or listen to the very word of God? You don't have to read this. <laughs> you can
2: listen to it. We have technology that will read this thing to you. It's awesome. Because this is reminding us of our faith. Who is the object of our faith? You don't build your faith by trying harder. You build your faith in God by knowing him more. Let's say you're trying to build your faith in a person, right? Let's say you got me here and you were in business together and we've made a deal. So
1: far, we've made five deals. We've had, you know, I'll pay you this. By this time, you're going to give me, give me these results. And for five times in a row now, I've failed you.
2: I'm not delivered. Is it going to be easy for you to have faith in me? How do you build that faith? Do you think if you just try harder to have faith in
1: me, then your faith in me is going to be built up? No, the only way that your faith in me is going to be built up by actually step up to the plate and show that I'm worthy of your faith that I can withstand the expectations that you have for me. That's the only way
2: you build up your faith. How do you build your faith in God? By reminding yourself again and again throughout human
1: history, he has been the one to come through every single time. He is worthy of all of your expectations and he can carry them.
2: No way, Uh, no, no problem, no way. And he opened the Red Sea I'm sure he can do something about your financial troubles. He,
1: he, He led people out of slavery in Egypt, took down the greatest army of his time. I'm pretty sure he can also do something about your
2: anger problem. Why is it important that we be people of the book? So that our faith can grow. And the only way our faith grows is if we realize that God is actually worthy of our faith. I would encourage you this as well. Read your Bibles to remember the
1: unfolding history of God throughout the ages, but also remember your own testimony. I think a lot of people do this thing wrongly when they, they come, that maybe they, they come to the Christian faith and they come from a horrible background and what they start to do is compare themselves to other people. Man, when this guy speaks, I like, I I know half the words that he's using.
2: Like, he's so smart, whatever. No, no, no. Just look at where you were where you were last year, last week, last month, and what God
1: has done in this time. Don't compare yourself to other people. Just say, God, would you continue to work on me? Would you continue to change me? And then start to remember, not only what he's done throughout the history of the church, but also what he continued to do in your own life to have your faith built. Because there'll be dark and heavy circumstances that you face where man, Dwelling in the now, quote unquote, as people say so popularly so often, you just have to dwell in the now and everything. No, sometimes dwelling in the now is horrible because everything around you is horrible. In those dark circumstances, you have to have something greater to look at. Another thing that I see here in the text is our God is amazing because he elevates the seemingly weak and he humbles the seemingly great. In verses uh, seven and eight, so how does he do that? Well, take for instance, Abram. This is an elderly man and he has an elderly wife. And God says to these, this elderly couple, hey, I'm going to pick you guys to create a
2: nation out of. And he takes them um, and establishes the descendants of this
1: elderly couple as a nation in the land of the seemingly great. I think about all the nations that God said, nope, this land is mine. I own this earth and this is going to be for my people. Now think about this. He takes Abram in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, Abram is 99 years old, right? I am 34 and I'm already starting to experience back pain. (laughs) I can't imagine what it's like to be 99 years old but he takes Abram and says, I'm going to create a nation out of you. And Abram, if you didn't know this, he's walking around with this at least very ironic name, if not rather shameful name. Anybody want to, anybody know what the name Abram
2: means? Oh, okay. Bible questions. Okay. Abram, not Abraham. So before, before the, before the name
1: change, Abram means, I feel like a southerner or worse. Abram.
2: I feel like that's how someone from uh, Louisiana would say Abraham, Abram. Uh, Abram means exalted father. So he's 99 years old. His wife is around 90.
1: And his name is exalted father. In this society, having children is a point of pride and, privilege and honor. And yet you walk around with this ironic name, exalted father, and yet you have no kids.
2: And this has been your name for all of your life. And you've tried and it's never happened. Now you realize biologically, it's probably not going to happen. But God does something crazy. He says to Abram, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call you Abraham. And you may ask, is that any less shameful for Abram? Nope. In fact, he, he just upped the game a little bit.
1: He made his situation even worse, unless he had kids. Now his name means the father of multitudes. Now he takes this frail old couple that doesn't have kids up until this point, and from a biological standpoint, they shouldn't have kids from this point on, and says, I'm going to make your name a reality. I'm going to elevate the seemingly weak, if you will simply trust me. And maybe that's where you're at today, that you see your limitation, you have a lot of dreams, and yet if you're totally honest with yourself or the people around you, they just don't seem to be a reality or even, even something that could be a reality. Let me remind you of who our God is. He takes the seemingly weak and elevates them if they simply have faith in him. Our God can do the impossible. And in the face of all of these established governments and nations that are in this this land, he says to them, no, you're gonna leave and I'm gonna establish the descendants of this old frail couple in that land. And so the greatness of God is broad, it's general, it expands all over creation and the things that are seen, but also in the things that are not seen. But the greatness of God is also very personal.
2: And I wanna end with this. In verses nine to 15, hear the Levites pray. You saw the affliction of our
1: fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into a mighty water. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light before them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, Good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes, and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go
2: in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So you can see the parallels of this story of how God
1: brings out. A nation of Israel in slavery in Egypt.
2: If you're a Christian, there are so many parallels to that story in your own life. Like if you think about verses nine and eleven, it says he heard their cry when they faced the seeming what seemed
1: like an insurmountable barrier keeping them away from the freedom they wanted, as they faced the Red Sea. When we faced our own sin that separated us from the true freedom found in God. When we were confronted with the holiness of God and the sea of our sin and failures that kept us at a distance, we too would have been without hope if God would have not acted and come in to intervene. But Jesus made a way through that sea of sin. By his own death, he paid the debt and gave us life. He made us clean by taking our shame. In verse 10, he talks about the Egyptians and the people of God saw God at work by elevating himself above the so-called gods of Egypt and the power of Egypt. If you, if you want to do an interesting Bible study, look at the 10 plagues and do a history of what the gods of Egypt were like, right? There was a, there was a God in Egypt that looked like a frog. There was a, uh, the river was worshiped as holy and so on and so forth. What God does in the 10 plagues is to say, To all the gods of Egypt, you might think that you're something, but look, I am in control here. And the Egyptians and the people of God, they saw God at work by elevating himself above the so-called gods of Egypt and the power of Egypt. Now, many of us who have run to Christ have seen the
2: supremacy of Jesus. And I love this. I love the various stories about how some of us came to faith. Some
1: we were confronted with the supremacy of Jesus when we were simply asking a lot of questions and the logic of Christ, uh, the logos of Christ came to us and the reason of Christianity started to dismantle our doubts. Some of you have seen the power of God on display as you came running to Christ
2: and you weren't so much worried about the questions anymore. You just knew Christ was the way. But, In verses 12 to 15, we see that God, even after freeing the Israelites out of slavery and continuing to provide for them
1: as they're faced with a desert with food and drink. So we see God leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, not only showing them that he's willing to take them out of Egypt, but to continue to lead them even as they've been freed from their slavery we see the greatness of God, our God, becoming personal as he not only cares for them generally, but interacts with them personally. He's not only showing his power by a, a pillar of cloud or pillar of fire, but rather he's revealing himself by speaking. Who are coming out of slavery where their masters would force them to work for their benefit. And now they've come to serve God, their true master, who would force them to rest. How crazy this is. Their Egyptian slavers would force them to produce food and fruits for them and here is their true master making it rain food down from heaven for them. And I think this is such a reflection of the good news of Jesus. We are like those people in the desert who are not only freed from being slaves to fear or sin or death by God's grace, but even after our freedom is found in Christ, Even after he has purchased us with his blood, we still rely on Christ to provide for our nourishment and our sustenance. We come to the cross with empty hands, with nothing to offer. We're just like those Israelites in the desert who are simply saying, God, we're in a desert. We can't grow food. We can't hunt
2: food. (laughs) There's no water here. We need you to get us through this. And isn't this a picture of the Christian life? Us saying, God, I don't know what to do here. (laughs) Will you continue to not only provide
1: for my freedom, but for my daily sustenance, for my daily strength, for my daily wisdom? Will you come
2: through? Because I don't know what I should do or say. And here we are today, remembering the greatness of our God, how he continues to provide. And when you start to see the greatness of God with clarity, every other circumstance is gonna, it's gonna change as we start to see with a clear perspective. As we go into this week, you're faced with choices to either spend time in prayer, talking about the greatness of your problems with God, or to spend time in prayer, thinking about the greatness of God, and then seeing that your current circumstances are nothing compared to who he is and what he's done in the past. This is why, as a pastor, I would pray and plead with you. Give yourself time. Please give yourself time in a busy world to do what the Levites did. Spend time in the book. Don't just read this. Let this book read you. Let it con- convict
1: you. Let it let it break you down if it need be so that Christ can come and heal. Sometimes we need to be broken to, to kill our pride to kill our self-reliance, to kill our thoughts that I can do this by myself. But then when the healing of Christ comes in, man, life gets better. So I would encourage you this week, I would plead with you this week. There are so many people and so many things that are gonna be fighting for your attention. Give your attention to Christ. Remember the greatness of God. Remember the history of his work and give your time in prayer to see everything around you from an eternal perspective. All right, and, and to, to start that off, what we want to do is to remember Christ in communion. Just as the Israelites were provided for in the desert by man of the rain down from heaven and water that flowed from the rock, Christ continues to provide. He had a last supper with his disciples and broke bread and he drank wine and said, do this in remembrance of me every time you drink wine, every time you break bread. That just as this food nourishes the body, And this is a new covenant signed by Christ and his blood. He died for you so that you can have life in him. As we drink, we remember the blood of Christ that was poured out for us. As we eat, we remember the body of Christ that was broken for us so that we could have life. And so as we go into this week, we wanna remember the greatness of Christ, not only what he's done in the past, but what he continues to do even today. And so I wanna pray, if you're a Christian, Can can someone get Svava outside, by the way? Uh, Anybody out there? Or Phoebe? Um, So if you're a Christian in here, which means you've surrendered your life to Christ, you believe that Christ alone is your savior, that you're not here to justify yourself or earn salvation, but rather to trust in Jesus, that he provided everything that you need and you're gonna surrender your life to him and live for him. Man, I'm glad that you're here. Remember Christ with us. If you haven't taken those two steps, I really, really pray that one of these days you will take this step because this is the greatest gift of all. Um, if you haven't taken that step, please don't do this with us. Um, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be cour- courteous. Uh, you would simply be, um, minimizing the, the point of all this. And, and the Bible actually warns against taking communion, um, without worrying about repentance. And so please don't, don't, uh, take communion, uh, with us. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you, Join us in remembering Christ uh, one of these days. And if you want to know more about what it it looks like to follow Christ, I would love to talk to you after the
2: service. But let's pray together. Uh, Father, we we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. We
1: thank you for your greatness and I pray that you give us the grace to see your greatness in our day-to-day life. I pray that we would see you more clearly as everything else fades that we would see the worth of Jesus Christ above everything else in this life. Father, we praise you. We thank you for everything that you have done for us. I pray that we would become people of the book who remember what you have done, who are in awe of what you have done, that our faith would increase as we remember what you have done. Father, we praise you and we thank you for everything that you have done, everything you are. We love you, Father. Would you make us more like you? Would you equip us as we go into this week? May we glorify you with what we say, what we what we uh, what we do, how we think. In Jesus' name, we pray.
0: Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptist Church in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with The Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavogur, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland.